Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud at islac.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Jill Feldman. Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Feldman, a lung cancer patient and advocate. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we will be discussing stigma within the lung cancer community and what we can all do to understand it and overcome it. Today, I am joined by Terry Connoran, a three-time lung cancer survivor and advocate. She is the director and founder of the KRAS Kickers and the director of Live Lung International Relations. I'm also here with Jamie Stutz, a professor in the Division of Medical Oncology Department of Medicine at University of Colorado School of Medicine. Jamie is also chair of the Lung Cancer Stigma Initiative being developed by the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. And Mary Pasquinelli, a nurse practitioner in the pulmonary division at UI Health at the University of Illinois. She specializes in lung cancer and lung cancer screening and pulmonary nodule management. Thank you to each of you for being here today. Thank you, Jill. Let's begin by acknowledging that lung cancer stigma and its impact on diagnosis, treatment, and caring for people with lung cancer is well documented. And the impact of stigma and the fact that it is directly related to poor outcomes for people with lung cancer is also well documented. It remains a critical problem. But what truly is stigma and where does it stem from? And Terry, I'd like to start with you because you've been a patient and an advocate and you've been very active and vocal in the lung cancer community. And you've been also very open and honest about your smoking history which many people aren't, many people are afraid to be. So can you talk a little bit about how stigma has impacted you and what you and other patients have experienced with regard to how you're treated and compassion because of the smoking stigma? Well, that's a really good question, Joe. And the problem was when you're first diagnosed with lung cancer, you're just even trying to come to grips with it. You know, that you've got this disease and people do, if you do choose to tell somebody that you're sick, the first times that you start telling them that you're sick, you're just expecting, and I'm sorry, you're already opening up your heart to let them know that you're vulnerable and that you're kind of like down in, and down in the dumps and, and you're, you're hurting. And I was completely shocked that when I told the first people that I've been diagnosed with lung cancer and their immediate question back was, oh, are you a smoker? So immediately it came back at me and it was a matter of pointing the finger at me back. And I was shocked that I needed to own up to something that I used to do, that I had done, that the whole world was doing in the 70s and 80s, that somebody would even dare to kind of, I don't know, start digging around in, in my past like that. You know, uh, and so it really cut to the core. 
it cut to the core. And it was so shocking at first. And and so for a long time, I wasn't even telling people that I was a smoker and I was denying it. And it took an advocacy uh, getting out and just kind of talking to people. And I realized that I was contributing to the stigma by not owning the fact that I was a former smoker. And I didn't smoke the 30 pack years or whatever, you know, that would qualify me for a screen. Okay. But, and I had my doctor knew about it and all this. And she's like, oh, you didn't smoke enough to worry about it. Okay. And so I felt like I had moved on. But when I told people about the diagnosis, then they hadn't moved on. Wow. That's tough. And it also affects our families, right? So the way in which it's experienced by patients, it's similar to caregivers, right? It's brutal. You know, I have three kids in their 20s and, you know, I, I get like cheered up thinking about it, that it's bad enough that they're having to cope with the fact that mom's been diagnosed with cancer. Okay. Now they're being asked, oh, well, what kind of cancer? And then, oh, well, oh, oh, it's lung cancer mm-hmm. in a knowing sort of a way. And it's like, oh, I didn't know your mom smoked. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and, and it, it was just, you know, take me on, man, but don't take on my kid. You know, I mean, this just rears off the mama bear in me. And it's just like, and it really infuriates me. Yeah. It really infuriates me. And to this day, you know, the kids kind of like, they're, they tread lightly. Mm-hmm. And we've had to learn how to answer that response and turn it into an education moment. But you have to put your face on to do it. You know, I've walked out of church before and somebody's like, oh yeah, well, Terry, and she had lung cancer and blah, blah, blah. And you guys might have this to talk about. And I've had people with that. Oh, it was the non-smoking kind. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I do? Do I lie? Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I, I mean, personally, my kids experience it now, but losing both my mom and dad to lung cancer, whenever I would experience it, all I could think about is none of my other friends who lost parents to various cancers were asked if their mom or dad did something to deserve it and die of it. So it's so it is very pervasive. And Jamie, as head of the stigma task force of the NLCRT, and with your research focus on stigma, let's start by talking about what's the definition of stigma? We all think we know what it is, but what is it really? Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that that question about defining this the stigma and this bias that is so common. I think Terry highlighted so many of the key elements in from her experience that really give us a clue as to what what this really is. And at its core, uh, this lung cancer stigma is an othering process. Instead of bringing together, and, and Terry highlighted this, instead of feeling connected at a time when someone was obviously hurting, um, it's an othering, it's a distancing, it's a mark of disgrace that is that is interjected in the situation when we should be doing the exact opposite as human beings and demonstrating our empathy and our compassion and our support. And uh so that's at its core what it really is, and it's so terribly unfortunate. But there, 
there, there's something that I like to hold on to a little bit. And that is, this is not a natural thing. This is a learned behavior. And, and the only, and while that's discomforting and unfortunate, it can be unlearned. And I think that that gives us the opportunity to think and act and feel differently and to work with those individuals uh, who are experiencing this to mitigate the consequences, to learn, like Terry said, how to handle these kinds of questions, this kind of othering that, that helps them feel like they can navigate those situations and even be an advocate and, and an educator to, to confront that. But most importantly, we also have to reflect on it ourselves. And I think Terry, once again, provided a terrific example of, of reflecting on her own um, uh, process of thinking about it and feeling about it and acting in ways that, that maybe she was doing a little bit to perpetuate it. And, but we all have that. And so Jerry's not alone in that sense in any way. We all have these um, little gaps in our thinking and feeling that we can think through and, and, and choose to act differently. We, um, some colleagues and I are, are thinking also about uh, reframing and, and developing even broader definition of, of lung cancer stigma so that it can help us guide strategies to change how our entire culture and society views lung cancer in, in ways that can be much more supportive, embracing, and really bring those individuals at risk for lung cancer, as well as those people who've been diagnosed and their entire social network into the fold to be part of the process and to be part of, uh, of improving our outcomes and reducing the burden of lung cancer. Um, that's that's great to hear. So I, I want to ask you a question. When you say it's a learned behavior and stigma, are you talking about in the general public? Are you talking about government? Are you talking about healthcare providers? Is who who learns it? How is it learned? And how do we, you know, how do we understand that? So we think of lung cancer stigma as across the, the socio-ecological spectrum or from individuals all the, way, all the way through culture and societal organizations. And it has a different way of manifesting itself at each of those, each of those levels. And, you know, from we see at the, at the societal level, um, concerns about disparities in research funding, for example, um, dedicated to addressing these. Um, my colleagues who do research on lung cancer have uh, noted for years the difficulty of getting some of their research funded because of a disproportionate um, allocation of resources uh, for research, as well as uh, stigma being part of the decision-making process. And so it, you have to fight uh, to, to secure the, the research support and funding, but also uh, down to, um, you know, healthcare clinicians are not immune to bias and stigma and can interject that um, in subtle and overt ways in, in the care that is provided, in the relationships that are developed, um, as well as individuals and caregivers. Uh, we think of caregivers, you know, suffering through some of the same stigmas, 
but can also be perpetrators of some of the stigma in ways that really create some difficulties and toxicities in relationships at that point. And so going back to it, we, we all have these blind spots, um, you, you know, you know, in other situations, when I talk about lung cancer stigma, I own up to my own at first, or else it just sounds like, you know, uh, you know, frankly, a condescending jerk. Like, <laughs> and, and, and and no, I have these. I struggle with these all the time. How to see, you know, what? How do I think, feel, and act when I see an individual who is using tobacco? Um, can I embrace that person empathically or or and and, and supportively uh, in a way, um, as opposed to um, isolating and othering? And so I really think it's it's a multi-level kind of uh, a thing that's impacted us uh, across the entire society. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think many realize how much it does affect patients and affects outcomes. And I, I know it's unintentional for the most part, but there is this perception that a person has control and that their behavior is, you know, causal. But Mary, you work a lot with patients. You see stigma a lot in the work you do as a nurse and with lung cancer screening. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Thank you, Jill. So stigma can affect a person in so many different ways, um, from getting screened for lung cancer, openly sharing their history of smoking, getting the resources they need and they deserve. They often will downplay symptoms that they have, and that makes a delay in seeking medical evaluation. And unfortunately, sometimes this can lead to being diagnosed with lung cancer at a later stage versus an earlier stage when it's more likely to be cured. So I run a nodule clinic and a lung cancer screening clinic. And lung nodules that are found on CTs for you, many people get CTs for different reasons, can be found in smokers, non-smokers, former smokers. It doesn't matter. Uh, the The smoking issue does not matter. I mean, lung nodules can happen in the population across um, smokers and non-smokers. But it's important that individuals get the care they need in a non-judgmental way. So lung cancer screening includes having an annual low-dose CT with people who have a heavy smoking history. And by finding lung cancer early when it's more easily to be cured and can save lives. But it's important that patients also feel comfortable in disclosing their smoking history and that providers and healthcare professionals give those patients support and resources in a non-judgmental way. And screening saves lives. And it's so important for patients to be um, supported in this proactive um, screening for, for healthcare. Yes, it definitely is. And it's interesting because within the lung cancer community itself, there's also a little bit of a stigma. And People who don't have a history of smoking sometimes get offended by the talking about tobacco or talking about quitting smoking. But there is a fine line because as a society, we have been working so hard and we've been successful at helping people who smoke quit and at preventing others from starting because they're 
there are health issues that come with it. So I guess the fine line is how do we acknowledge the importance of those actions with unintentionally shift without unintentionally shifting the blame to those who do or have smoked? And at the same time, showing compassion for every single person with lung cancer. So I look at it like, you know, it. I remember again with my family, the pain of watching someone you love suffer the cruelty of lung cancer until their last breath is the pain is unbearable. So does it really matter whether or not they smoke? Does it mean they deserve to die? Does it minimize the loss? Does it mean that those of us less left behind deserve less sympathy? It is really, really, you know, kind of a, a struggle. And so I, we have to improve things. How, what can we do to um, help others? What are we doing right now in the community? Uh, Terry, what do you see happening within our community to help combat this stigma? I see that we've started this National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Okay, so at least we're acknowledging that we have a problem. So you, you can't solve anything unless you recognize that you've got a problem. So, you know, kudos to, you know, to opening and starting that dialogue. What I'd like to be able to see is a little bit more clarity within the lung cancer community itself. Because you show up and the first thing people are is like, well, I'm a non-smoker and I've been attacked online for people. It's like, no, you don't understand. I'm a never smoker. I don't. So you expected this. And it's like, and there's, there's times where you just come in, you know, unhinged. And I'm not diminishing their value, but it is very passive aggressive. You know, and so here it is. We have this thing that we can come in common with. Okay, we can come around and we can rally and say, let's move forward with more research. Okay, because it's what it's going to take. I mean, we've identified mutations and fusions and all these other things that we need to do. So let's focus on what we can do instead of looking in our rearview mirror and saying, okay, this is what we did do. Okay. You know, I already quit smoking. There's less people smoking now than are smoking, right? Statistically speaking. Okay. So we, so we've made progress there. So yay, we're doing that. So yes, people shouldn't start smoking. I think they got that message. So mm -hmm. let's work on doing what we can do and solve the problem that we have and find the commonality. And, you know, and, you know, I hate to start singing kumbaya, but that's really what we need to do. Is, is come together and solve the problem that we can solve. And, you know, and stop, you know, acknowledging, stop recognizing it. Yay, I'm, yay, you, you were a never smoker. You know, maybe you were a paste eater. Maybe that's why you got your, <laughs> I don't know, right? Okay, but that's how it feels when somebody yeah. asks me something, right? And I hate to be ridiculous, but it's true. You know, and, and then you look at like the scientific conferences and I'm still new to attending them. Right. And, you know, and it says all it is is smokers and non-smokers. So the smokers includes former smokers. Well, at what point am I a former smoker? Okay. Okay. So I quit smoking 25, 30 years ago. Maybe I smoked five, maybe I smoked five years. Maybe I smoked 10 years. Maybe I smoked 15. It, where is that, where is that line? 
And how come it's not taking the environmental stuff into it? I mean, my parents smoke like chimneys. My mom died from breast cancer. Well, gee, lucky her, right? But she, but no, but we know that that's caused by by smoking as well. So anyway, so what I'm trying to say is we need to stop trying to separate and come together on what we can do and move forward with it. Yes. And do you, do you think that's the reason why there aren't a lot of advocates in the lung cancer community that have a smoking history? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have had, and I've had people say to me, yeah, but I deserve this. I mean, I, I mean, call after call and in, in people will find you out on, and on Facebook or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but I deserve this. And, and no, you didn't deserve mm-hmm. this. Okay. You didn't go out and, you know, stand at an oncoming train, say, come and take me, you know, this is not what happened. Right. Okay. So it's a matter of you got what you got. Cancer runs in my family. Maybe it's because I've got coal mining genes. I don't know. Maybe it's a history of paste eating. We don't know. Okay. But we do know that I've got what I've got and let's move forward. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And personally, I've experienced that when I was diagnosed with lung cancer. I have a brother uh, 18 months older than I I am that has been rolling and smoking his own cigarettes since he was 16. He does not have lung cancer. And some of the things people say to me are completely like devastating. And I do think that 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 is part of the reason that we don't have a ton of advocates with any smoking history. But on the flip side, I understand why people who don't have a smoking history feel like they have to be on the defense the minute that they tell someone they have lung cancer because there's all of a sudden that question of whether or not you deserved it or it was self-inflicted. So we are addressing it in the lung cancer community itself, but Jamie, can you talk a little bit about your research and about what the NLCRT uh, Stigma Summit Task Force is working on? Sure. And uh, the our research has, has focused on uh, the students, um, medical trainees, nursing trainees, and asking the question about whether the levels of uh, stigma that they already experience or or feel and think about. And this would help us guide whether we do integrate training in medical school or nursing school or physical therapy school as a strategy to uh, prevent or treat the stigmas that that they already have and help them think differently. Uh, unfortunately, we found that, you know, they they already have some of those um, stigmas and biases that are pretty baked into how they think about uh, lung cancer risk and, and lung cancer diagnoses and individuals diagnosed with, with lung cancer. And so even at the time of medical school and, and, and nursing school and other training that we, we, we have some of these prominent uh, perspectives that we need to work with um, and, and, and help them um, think and act differently. But I also like to highlight uh, the fact that there's been, a, you said at the top that the effects have been, you know, ubiquitous. They're, they're all over. Lung cancer stigma is the dark cloud that 
prevents the sunshine of all of the innovation that's happening in lung cancer care. I mean, frankly, lung cancer care and science leads oncology right now. Um, there are so many reasons to be so optimistic and so hopeful that we're making a paradigm shifts across the entire trajectory. As, as Terry alluded to, and Mary works in lung cancer screening, um, uh, diagnostics, stratification of patients, biomarkers, the target therapies, immunotherapies, and the group we're talking with knows all about this. And there's reasons to be jumping for joy and excitement about all of this. Um, but I think that the stigma dampens that and divides us in so many different ways that it, it really impairs our ability to see that, that light um, that, that is being shown. But we do have many areas where we're turning the corner on stigma. Uh, we, we've talked about how recognizing this as a major problem is, is one of the key steps. We have literature to support this. We have a greater societal recognition. We have organizations who are empowered and resourced to be able to start to um, do things about this. And I wanna highlight some of the ways that we're turning the corner. First off, we have interventions led by um, colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dr. Jamie Ostroff and Smita Banerjee, who are working on empathic communication to train our clinicians to integrate more empathic and supportive ways of, of taking tobacco histories, of talking about uh, lung cancer risk. This is a turning of the corner of doing things to, to combat, confront, minimize, mitigate these stigmas. Um, we also have interventions that are, are more uh, focused on individuals. Um, uh, Heidi Heyman and her team at the University of Arizona has been working on things to more empathically support and help individuals develop the skills to confront lung cancer uh, stigma when it's experienced. And so I think we're seeing a really optimistic transition away from just documenting the problem, which, mind you, is very important in all of its different manifestations, but, but also important to take that next step, transition to doing things. And I think that that's one of the things that the Stigma Initiative can really do um, from the American Cancer Society's uh, roundtable efforts is to really harness broad spectrum input that guides us into messages that are based on the urgency of the situation, the need for compassion and empathy and support um, to combat uh, the, the stigma, and, and harnessing that optimism and hope that is being infused within the lung cancer community and needing to disseminate that broadly to society to help our entire world think about lung cancer differently. And maybe that's grandiose, uh, but that's what I want. And I think we can achieve that. And it's going to take a lot of little things to happen, but that change can happen. We can unlearn this. We can put together unconventional partnerships with, with our tobacco control colleagues who uh, we need to talk to and work with to redesign our messaging to be more empathic and supportive and still achieve um, tobacco prevention and tobacco treatment. We need to need to work with our industry partners to leverage the, their ideas and their resources and the hope that they're generating in terms of uh, really 
transforming our entire society and how we think and, and treat and care for individuals who either at risk or have been diagnosed with, with lung cancer. Wow. I, I don't think that's grandiose, Terry, Mary, do you guys? No, oh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, I don't either. We're right there with you to help in any way we can. And I think those ideas are fantastic. Mary, I'm wondering with the population of patients that you see and some in underserved communities, how you try to combat the stigma in those communities and will some of these things that Jamie talked about be applicable considering the majority of patients diagnosed with lung cancer are in smaller or underserved communities? Yeah, so we know that stigma has a significant impact on a patient's life. A few years ago, I had a woman come to see us who was newly diagnosed with lung cancer. And I think about this woman all the time. And the first time she came in, her family was there with her. Um, they were supporting her. And she was one of these patients that was diagnosed very late. But because of the treatment, the new treatments that we have now, she was doing remarkably well. I mean, the, the cancer was responding. She got chemotherapy and then immunotherapy. She was doing so great. But as she was going through her treatment, I saw that her family members were not joining her at her appointments anymore. And I saw her becoming more withdrawn. And so I sat down and talked to her. And she began to softly cry. And she said, it's been difficult since I was diagnosed with lung cancer. My family blames me because I smoked. And I blame myself. And she also said, and this, I, I think about this so much because she said, I now suffer alone in silence. And it was a painful moment. I felt her pain. And no one deserves to have lung cancer. No one deserves to have, you know, any cancer. Um, but her grief was palpable, even though she was doing incredibly well. So the stigma of this was what was causing such anguish. And what she, we gave her the additional resources and support, and we supported her as much as we could. But what she really needed is to have the support from her family and friends and community and society. She needed a world free of stigma. And it is just so important that as clinicians that it's not just working with a patient with the disease, it's working with everyone. And so when family members come in to have this talk about how they're feeling about the diagnosis, talking to the caregivers and the children and the family and supporting all of them so they have the message of what stigma can do. And also talking to uh, people in our clinics about the words that they use when they're talking to our patients. They may not realize that the words that they are choosing may be stigmatizing. A couple years ago, I heard one of our uh, medical assistants who is an incredible medical assistant. She's fabulous. But she was rooming a patient and her job is to room and take vitals and ask some questions. And one of the questions that they ask about is, is smoking and if they have pain and if they have a fall. And she said, um, for the smoking question, she said, 
you don't smoke, do you? And she didn't realize the what just asking that question made it stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. And the patient had just recently quit. And the patient says, no, I, I don't smoke. I overheard this. And when I came in and I talked to the patient, the patient says, I, I, I do. When I talked to, I knew that the patient had a smoking history. And we talked about that non-judgmentally to get the patient the help and the support that they need. But I also talked to the medical assistant. And she had no idea about just the way you frame questions because we want patients to get the help and the resources they need. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a big picture and we have to work on it on individual levels with our patients and the caregivers, our, our clinicians, the people who see patients and as society as a whole. It's not the patient that should be blamed. It's, I mean, the, the patient is not weak. The individuals that smoke are not weak. It's the cigarettes and the nicotine that are strong. Yeah. And, and it, when you look at, and I think that's overlooked that it is a disease itself addiction. So, you know, there has to be, whether it's with any drugs or whether it's with nicotine, whatever it is, it's a disease in itself. And it's interesting because again, we've talked about this a lot, any other cancer, melanoma, nobody immediately asks you, oh, well, did you worship the sun? Or if somebody has a heart attack, what their diet was. And so it is so strongly associated with lung cancer. And I agree that the language is critical. And the language in clinic is critical. But you know, one thing, my grandiose idea, (laughs) Jamie, is also the language in presentation. So, you know, I would like to see almost like a language guide that, uh, and I'm working with this black on this, a language guide that helps with using respectful and non-judgmental language when giving presentations, submitting abstracts. I think that is a start too in changing language within everything and then it trickles down. So that, yeah, it's a horrible story. It's about your patient. I think we've all kind of experienced that in one way, shape or form. Oh, goodness. But um, well, I think we need to start concluding the podcast. So as we get towards the end, Sunday is the first day of Lung Cancer Awareness Month. It's also an election year. So we don't want to ask too much of anybody, but I would like our listeners to think about what simple steps can they do to help erase stigma. We've made all this progress in the field that we've talked about, but we still have a really far way to go. And it's not easy to break the habits that we talked about, uh, but making a conscious effort and changing the words you use, taking the steps to change language, and breaking down these negative stereotypes and conversations with family and friends and colleagues, I think is a great a great step. And there actually was an article that people can find in the news section of the ISLAC website about stigma 
and the NLCRT's efforts to ending it. Uh, please read it, share with friends and colleagues, share on social media, start that conversation. But what would you guys, what last tips would you guys give to our listeners that they could do now that would make a difference? Jamie, you want to start? I can start with that. I have three three things that I'd like to quickly go over. One is uh, personal reflection. And I think before we we go out and do things with, with others, uh, I think it's probably a good step to try to get our own homes in order first in terms of thinking about how we interact with finding your own uh, blind spots, uh, maybe consulting with a colleague to say, hey, how can I do this differently or looking at some resources? I I'm concerned about how I interact with uh, the people I serve or my community, you know, with regard to this particular issue. Second is uh, I will, words matter. Um, you've clearly articulated that. I also think images matter and, and how our our educational materials that we have, our strategies that we use to educate about uh, about tobacco and about lung cancer, uh, are sometimes rife with with imagery and words that are stigmatizing. So one of the things the Roundtable is doing is developing a concept along the lines of, of the language, but also a detection device. So we're calling it the lung cancer stigma biopsy. And it's it's going to be a process by which you can review your uh, patient education materials or communications or marketing strategies to systematically extract the stigma and bias from those and to make sure that they're building on uh, empathy and compassion and engagement and support themes rather than anything that's playing on, on more uh, basic and vulnerable um, issues. Uh, so those are two things. And then the last thing is to encourage you to engage the stigma initiative um, and to track its um, progress uh, through the National Lung Cancer Roundtable and other organizations. I, I really feel like there's such a groundswell of support for addressing this broad spectrum challenge um, with a lot of hope and optimism and to encourage uh, folks to engage that in the ways that they can to change, uh, to work with this issue in their clinics, to work with this issue in their labs, in their science, in their um, communities to um, you know, transform this as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and I wanna add one, one layer of thing about, about this, uh, about the question about, did you smoke? Um, when I'm feeling optimistic, I, I attribute that to, that's the one thing people know about lung cancer. So that's the one thing they ask about. Well, that's, that's in many ways quite pathetic that, that, that that's the only thing people know about lung cancer. So it's the first thing that comes to mind. We need to educate people more about broad spectrum lung cancer prevention, control and care and people and empathy. And, and that way we can bring individuals who are either at risk or have been diagnosed into the fold, into what is the normal process of expressing empathy and compassion, just like Terry outlined. Um, 
um, originally. So I wanted to add that into the mix. But the, so the, my three things were um, self-reflection, uh, uh, thinking about how we can do uh, eradicate lung cancer stigma from our processes and then engage the, uh, the uh, stigma initiative through the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. That's great. I'm glad you added the last point about did you smoke because we taught we did talk about the barriers to diagnosis, treatment and care that the stigma creates. But one thing we didn't talk about today that maybe we can in the future is the bar- barrier it creates to other risk factors, research and other risk factors for lung cancer, which leaves the general public also feeling like they're safe if they have never smoked. And that's a false, you know, conception. And I think that it's important that we do look at the bigger picture. So I'm glad you brought that up. But I also wanted to ask you, where can people get more information on the work the task force is doing and hear more about what you've done so far and where you are right now and moving forward and how they can help? So the the roundtable um, uses our, our nlcrt.org uh website as an organizing force. And over the next few months, you're going to see more and more uh, material and and frameworks and strategies appear there, as well as a series of presentations and that will be launched in, in, in November and as well as at the roundtable meeting in December um, to really take the, the work that's been going on over the last 10 months to put together a framework and start to hash out the very specific strategies that will uh, will be uh, used across the board from um, advocacy organizations, industry partners, clinicians, researchers um, at various levels, tackling different aspects of this problem um, and mitigating its consequences, uh, preventing its ongoing perpetration and propagation over time. And so um, there will be more available, but there's just been a lot of background work that's been done with a lot of community engagement rallying around. Uh, Thank you, Jill, for being such a prominent part of that and and making sure the voices as well, Terry, uh, survivors and advocates are very well represented in that process. And uh, really uh, a huge shout out to our colleagues, Dusty and and Jim, who've been um, allocated a tremendous amount of time to to this effort um, to bring together a framework to move uh, forward and and to change how we do this and and just kind of evacuate it from from lung cancer um, care in in total. You know, obviously that's our goal and and, um, might be a time in the future, but but we've got to start heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. Change in progress doesn't happen overnight, but we're headed in the right direction. That's for sure. Uh, Mary, what are some tips that you can give our listeners? As Jamie said, your self-reflection and understanding your own implicit and explicit bias, that is really important for us to understand our own feelings about um, lung cancer and stigma. 
and to explore those. And then when you see stigma, look at it and and talk about it. If you see something happening, and this can be with uh, caregivers, individuals, patients, or just out in society or or in uh, the community, it's okay to talk about it in a way to educate the public and educate patients and caregivers about the importance of uh, uh, getting rid of the stigma and giving them tools to do so. And then as uh, I'm such an advocate for lung cancer screening, for the people who are listening to this, if they're high risk for lung cancer, or if they know family members or friends, get screened. Talk to your primary care physician about your risk of lung cancer, because screening can save lives. We know that. We want people to be survivors. Yes, definitely. And what does what is high risk? What what are the criteria for somebody being at high risk in case our listeners don't know? So currently the criteria for being high risk is um, we know that lung cancer increases with age and with a smoking history. So um, people who have a high smoking history, which is right now the guidelines say uh, 30 pack years or more, which is equivalent to one pack a day for 30 years and over the ages of 55, 55 to 80. But that may be changing in the future with the age coming down to 50 and the smoking level, um, smoking intensity going down to 20 pack years, which is one pack a day for 20 years or a combination of that. So what is, what's best is to actually talk to your primary care physician about lung cancer screening. They will talk about the other risks too. Having COPD increases your risk. Having a family history of, of lung cancer increases risk. Or having a personal history of a, a different type of cancer. Uh, smoking causes 15 other different types of cancer. No one focuses on that. But we need to dis- destigmatize all of this. Nobody, you know, it's it, no matter what type of cancer they have, it's this the um, advertising kind of targeted at um, stop smoking by connecting it to one particular cancer, but it, it increases the risk of many, many different kinds of cancers. So um, I, I just hope that everybody who is at a high risk gets screened for lung cancer and so we can save lives. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Terry, what would you say? You know, you guys all have bring in great points. And so I really appreciate the fact that you're checking in your own houses as well, because it's not necessarily just the words. A lot of times it's the tone that it's asked in, right? And I know that we can't control that, but just being able to do within your own housekeeping, that'd be fabulous. If I could actually say to, you know, somebody to the lung cancer community overall, we, we know you don't mean to be divisive, but please be more inclusive and try and understand that just because I had something, don't make me hide and make me disown who I am and, and, and what I did in the past. You know, and if you did smoke or you don't want to answer the question, you know, there's so many other things that you can, you can answer that with. You know, and find find the thing that works for you as far as being able to answer it, because it, it's 
it gives you the ownership of it. And it's much more empowering taking it and turning it into it. You know, as, as you were mm-hmm. saying, you know, is what at least 15 other cancers and heart disease and all these other things that are caused from, from the things these, you know what, people are just looking for an excuse. So it doesn't happen to them. So they're not safe. So stop being divisive. And that, that crosses, you know, every, everybody in, uh, in the lung cancer community overall. So, you know, and, and just let's keep looking forward and not worry about what happened in the past. Let's move forward and get the dollars to stop working towards getting people to stop smoking, get them screened. And, and let, let's do some research, right? So we can start solving the problem. Yeah, that's great advice. I'd like that you addressed anybody with a smoking history because we focus our efforts on the greater society too when it comes to erasing stigma. But I definitely think we need to do more uh, talking and um, empathic listening to those who have any kind of smoking history because no one deserves lung cancer. No one deserves to die from it either. And I I like, I do think a very easy, important first step is the self-reflection and looking at the language we use to change it. Because we know that words shape attitudes, right? And also words shape how the public views lung cancer. What we say and how we say it matters whether we're talking to family, friends, colleagues, we have to make that conscious effort. And I, you know, just want to add one more thing to everybody who's listening. There's a, a quote from To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think all of us had to read in middle school. But it really think about this. And it's you never really understand a person until you consider things from his or her point of view, until you climb into his or her skin and walk around in it. And I think that when you're thinking about self-reflection, you have to put yourself in that position to really understand it or try to understand it. I don't think you can unless you've experienced it. But, um, well, this has been such a great conversation. We could go on and on. And I think there's topics we talked about that we could cover individually for an hour. But I want to thank you guys for taking the time to discuss this very important topic and for all of the hard work you're doing in your community and in the bigger community to raise this conversation and make it a priority. And thank you to our guests for making the time to listen and to the podcast. I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website at www.iaslc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episode with all of your colleagues.